Last time we spoke about the extensive plans involved in Operation Cartwheel. The Allies were crossing their T's and dotting their I's. General Douglas MacArthur was getting closer to unleashing Operation Chronicle, the invasion of Woodlark and Kerwin Islands. MacArthur's Navy, that being the 7th Amphibious Fleet, were now prime and ready to go. Over in the Solomons, Admiral Halsey's Operation Toenails likewise had finalized their plans for a full-scale invasion of New Georgia. The invasion would consist of multiple amphibious assaults done by countless units, all with important missions. It was to be an extraordinarily complex operation that would showcase to the Japanese how far American production had come and just how doomed their empire of the rising sun was. In the words of a great wizard, the board is set, the pieces are moving, we come to it at last, the great battle of our time. This episode is The Invasion of New Georgia. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where quite a lot of you have actually come over and commented on my recent video, a tier list I did ranking generals of the Pacific War. Thank you very much. And just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find exclusive podcasts based off of things that my patrons want to hear more about, such as my series on General Kanji Ishiwara, and my soon-to-be episode on a rather bizarre event in which someone from Japan thought that they could create Israel in Shanghai. So check out my Patreon, it would mean a lot to me. Hey everyone, I just wanted to start this one off with a bit of an apology. I am well aware the past few episodes have been extremely heavy on the planning rather than the doing, as they say. Again, as I've said in the past, this is the reality when dealing with the week-by-week schedule. So, as all of you know, this podcast directly follows the YouTube series on Kings and Generals. To a T. Well, almost. I do like to wander off as much as I can. But today, I assure you, we are finally diving back into the fray of battle. Ever since the conclusion of Operation KE and the Allied victory at the Bismarck Sea, the war in the South Pacific had gotten a bit more quiet, but certainly tense. Both sides were looking at another, expecting a major offensive to kick off at any moment. But it would be the Allies who would kick off everything by unleashing the start of Operation Cartwheel. The opening shots of Cartwheel would begin with the invasion of Woodlark and Kerwin Islands, just off the southeast coast of New Guinea, and due south of New Britain. Colonel McKechnie's 162nd Regiment continued to prepare their Nassau Bay landings, just 11 miles south of Salamaua. Ever since April of that year, their 1st Battalion had been carrying intensive amphibious training at Morabi Harbor. 
They were being reinforced with the 532nd Engineer Shore Regiment, the 542nd Engineer Amphibian Regiment, the 592nd Engineer Boat Regiment, all under Brigadier William Heavey, and with the Papuan Infantry Battalion who had marched to Buso by mid-June. Under orders not to proceed any further north, they spent their time carrying out long-range patrols, gaining valuable intelligence on the enemy. From the intelligence, McKechnie believed there were about 75 Japanese near the mouth of the Bitoy River, an outpost or two along the beach at Nassau Bay, and about 300 Japanese on Cape Dinga, which also held an outpost. McKechnie decided to use Magiri Point as a staging base, which held an excellent beach 12 miles north of Morabe with good cover for the landing crafts. They had with them two LCMs, two captured Japanese barges, and 29 Higgins boats. To further augment them, four PT boats were assigned to help transport the men, around 150 of them from Morobi. In the meantime, Brigadier Moten planned to send Captain Dexter's D Company, who had just achieved an incredible victory at the Lababia Ridge, where they repelled a Japanese force ten times their size, to go march over to the Bitoy River's mouth to divert the Japanese attention away from Nassau Bay. Alongside this, one of their platoons led by Lieutenant Dave Burke would guide the Americans to the landing beach. Now, Operation Chronicle was expected to go unopposed, though Kruger did not tell this to the men. The Woodlark group consisted of Colonel Cunningham's 112th Cavalry Regiment, while the Kerwina group would receive Colonel Herndon's 158th Regiment. Admiral Barbie's 7th Amphibious Force, with the support of Admiral Carpenter's 7th Fleet, would transport them all. On June the 20th, Kruger set up the 6th Army HQ at Milna Bay. The 6th Army was codenamed the Alamo Force, as it assumed control of the majority of the U.S. Army units involved in Operation Cartwheel. General Kruger's command was actually a bit awkward. Instead of operations being conducted directly by the 6th Army, it was the Alamo Force, which was purely an operational entity, basically administration, while they were in charge. And this meant that they were directly under control of General Douglas MacArthur. So as you can imagine for Kruger, well, it was like having to wear two hats at the same time. In his own words, The inherent difficulties faced by my dual headquarters in planning and administration were aggravated by the command setup, which was a novel one to say at the least. Thus, Alamo Force was on New Guinea, while the main body of the 6th Army HQ, the real one, was in Brisbane, until February of 1944, when upon it would be merged together. Yes, this was a sneaky maneuver by MacArthur to seize control. Ever since the Buna campaign, MacArthur was increasingly unhappy with having to depend primarily on Australian troops. Although on the surface he looked like he was in a great harmonious relationship with Blamey, in truth MacArthur was extremely critical of the man and the Australians in general. Alamo Force was kind of his way of wedging himself into the chief role for planning and conducting the later stages of the war thus by bypassing Blamey as the Allied Ground Force Commander. To kick off the operation, Kruger sent advance parties of the regiment groups to secure beachheads in the two islands. At 4 p.m. on June the 22nd, an advance party of the 112th Cavalry Regiment, led by Major McMaines, left Milna Bay aboard the destroyer transports Humphreys and Brooks, bound for Woodlark. They arrived in the dead of night at Gosopa and unloaded 200 men using six landing crafts. 
The destroyer transport departed at 4 a.m. for Milne Bay. It turned out an Australian coast watcher, not having been informed of the landings, nearly attacked the force with his locally recruited guerrillas. But upon hearing the accents of the troops, he quickly realized them to be friend and not foe. The advance party went to work performing reconnaissance, establishing defenses and facilities for the incoming invasion force, and clearly marked the beaches for their landings. The next day, the 158th Infantry Regiment's advance party, led by Lieutenant Colonel Floyd Powell, departed Milne Bay at 6.10 a.m. aboard the two destroyer transports. They were accompanied by a detachment of the 59th Combat Engineers. They arrived to Kiruina around midnight, taking their landing craft through a small channel that passed through a reef to the beach at Luzuya, codenamed Beach Red. Their unloading was quite slow due to the lack of experience, bringing them the threat of aerial attack. Thus, the ships were forced to depart partially loaded as a result. On June the 25th, Operation Chronicle officially began. 2,600 troops of Colonel Cunningham's Woodlark Force departed Townsville, Australia aboard six landing ships, a subchaser, and the destroyers Bagley and Henley. As the Woodlark Force slowly and stealthily made its way, 2,250 troops of Colonel Herndon's Kirawina Force departed Milne Bay aboard 12 landing crafts, two coastal transports, and they were escorted by Admiral Barbie's destroyers. They successfully landed at Luzoya Beach at dawn on June the 30th completely unopposed and the unloading process went uh, quite slow. Around the same time, Colonel Cunningham's force landed at Woodlark, also unopposed, but their unloading went extremely fast. The problem for the team at Kirawina was an extremely spiny necklace of coral. The landing craft had grounded several hundred yards short of the beach, with only a single one passing over the sandbar to land offshore. Heavy rain and a low tide were hampering the vehicles and thus making it kind of a nightmare. It was the complete opposite story over at Woodlark, though. Their supplies were already loaded onto trucks, which drove straight off the landing crafts, allowing for an efficient unloading process so the vessels could depart before the enemy even had hopes of launching an air attack. Meanwhile, B-25s of the U.S. 5th Air Force bombed Japanese strongpoints along the Batoy River, as A-20 Bostons hit supply dumps at the southern side of Nassau Bay on June the 29th. The amphibious landing force known as the McKechnie Force departed Mort Bay at dusk on the 29th. PT boats of the 7th Fleet took around 210 men of Lt. Col. Harold Taylor's 1st Battalion, 162nd Infantry Regiment, while 29 of the captured Japanese barges took another 770 men of the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade, and two mechanized landing craft took the 532nd Engineer Boat and Shore Regiment to McGarry Point. They landed in three waves, and just like Woodlark and Kirawina, it went unopposed, seeing all 770 men safely land at Nassau Bay. The Japanese defending the immediate area were just six guys at an observation post, and offered only a few shouts in defiance before they fled into the jungle. On June the 30th, the men went to work clearing up the beach to create a defensive perimeter, while some units of C Company marched south to link up with the incoming Papuan Infantry Battalion. Some of the other patrols ran into some Japanese who were turned around near the Bitoy River, which my Google Doc renamed the Bitcoin River, and I've done this take three times now as I was laughing my ass off. Yes, people, please do not read the actual scripts that uh, show up on Spotify. I do not correct everything, and Google Docs has a wild way of just conjugating and changing words and other things. It's quite funny. 
I do assure everyone, I, I do know how to write, though. Well, I think, anyways. Upon receiving news of the landing, General Nakano ordered the 3rd Regiment of the 66th Battalion to march south from Salamaua. However, the Australians were also applying pressure near Bob Dibby, so the 3rd Regiment could only carry out limited attacks on the Allied forces around Nassau Bay, before they would start performing delaying actions to allow the garrisons at Nassau Bay to withdraw towards Lake Salas. The Papuan Battalion began attacking the rear of the Japanese 3rd Regiment of the 102nd Battalion around Cape Denga, causing some casualties when they stormed a Japanese bunker. Nassau Bay would see some minor Japanese air attacks, but for the most part, things were going around pretty smoothly, allowing the CBs to work on the new facilities and airstrips for Woodlock and Carolina. Now, that's actually it for MacArthur's half. It's time to go over to the Solomons. As you will remember, Admiral Halsey's plan for New Georgia consisted of five different landings scattered about the island. Four of these landings were to occur on June the 30th. These landings were, number one, at Wickham Anchorage on the southeast coast of Wangunu, number two, Segi Point on the southeastern tip of New Georgia, number three, Viru Harbor on the southwest coast of New Georgia, just a few miles up from Segi Point, and number four, Rendova Harbor on Rendova Island, just across the Blanc Channel from Munda. As a preliminary, Halsey sought to land some reconnaissance teams. The first ones to arrive were at Seki Point on June the 14th, consisting of units from the 47th Seabees, tossed over by PBYs. They began constructing landing sites for heavy equipment to come over. The next saw some units go over to Viru Harbor, then Olana Bay on Vangunu just a bit west of Wickham Anchorage, another at Rendova Harbor, and at least one at Rice Anchorage. These teams all prepared the way for the future landing teams. However, all did not go too smoothly, for on June the 16th, over at Segi Point, a dozen scouts, being led by the New Zealand Coast Watcher, Donald Kennedy, unsuccessfully ambushed a Japanese patrol. Kennedy had established a defensive zone around the village of Segi using local native forces who were using scavenge weapons, and they tried often to ambush and kill small Japanese patrols. This particular patrol they had stumbled upon was a platoon from the 4th Company 229th Regiment operating around Viru Harbor. They didn't manage to kill any of the Japanese, but instead alerted Colonel Sasaki of the Allied activity near Segi Point and Viru Harbor. Colonel Sasaki responded by ordering Major Haramasao, the new commander of the 1st Battalion of his 3rd Company, and a machine gun platoon over to Viru Harbor the following night. His orders read, Settle things. Luckily, Hara had no idea where exactly Kennedy and his guys were, so they would have difficulty finding them. But this did mean Japanese activity in the area increased. On June the 20th, Kennedy made an inaccurate report indicating the Japanese had landed troops in Nono Lagoon, prompting Admiral Turner to react. That night, Turner sent Companies O and P of Colonel Curran's 4th Raiders to occupy Segi Point, with Companies A and D of the 103rd Regiment following them the very next day. This meant Kennedy and his men were saved, but it also alerted the Japanese of the incoming offensive as Allied destroyer transports were being spotted around Wickham. In turn, this prompted Admiral Kuzaka to put the Southeast Fleet on high alert, but further reconnaissance failed to find anything. Thus, by the 27th, the IGN relaxed. This was also partly due to the fact that IGN believed that no evasions would occur until late July or August. 
It would only be Sasaki who believed the Allies might invade as early as late June, so he had set to work preparing New Georgia's defenses. Sasaki did not have much time, nor much capable labor, as there was a large case of malaria going around. Added to this, materials and equipment were hard to come by, as supply missions were failing to arrive on time. The terrain of the island was quite an obstacle also. The Japanese dug into coral on the south side of their airfield and established communication lines towards the east. In the northern sector, Sasaki placed four 14-centimeter guns at Inoge Point, but Bairoko basically had nothing. East of the airfield, practically no defense existed. Sasaki managed at the last minute to construct some gun emplacements at Barioko, ingeniously using blocks of coral, something that the Japanese would really build upon later for island warfare. To establish a main line east of the airfield, he had the men build extremely strong bunkers to face frontal assaults across the Mundabar. Communications would be a major issue, as all they had to work with was a motor vehicle road that ran along the beach to Lambedi and about 1,000 meters of completed road between the Southeast Attachment HQ and the 229th Infantry HQ. Other than that, there were no roads, just some trails which Sasaki described as, quote, that turned into slush ponds after rain. To keep in contact with the troops spread out everywhere, Sasaki requested that they use an underground cable, but it seems that it never came to be. Sasaki was forced to spread his men in multiple places, seeing company-sized units in exposed locations at Wickham Anchorage, Viru Harbor, and Rundova Harbor. Such units would have been better used at places like Inogai, Barioko, or Ilagana. To help with the landings, General Kenny ordered the 5th Air Force to launch a heavy raid against Raval, while Admiral Merrill's cruisers escorted mine layers up to the Shortland Islands to mine the southern entrance to Bun. Merrill's cruisers also took their time to bombard Fazi, Balali, and the Papoarang Islands while he dispatched some destroyers to hit Villa. Early on June the 30th, B-24s and B-17s from the aerosols hit Kahili, and further raids would be made against Munda and Villa throughout the day. The night of June the 29th was a very stormy one, hindering the aerosols and the 5th Air Force's abilities and even Merrill's ships had difficulty carrying out their tasks. Admirals Turner and Fort departed from Guadalcanal, Tulagi and the Russells to land the forces. Two groups of the infantry units codenamed Barracudas, these being two companies of the 172nd Regiment en route for Rendova, and companies A and B of the 169th Regiment and the 1st Commando Fiji Guerrillas were en route for Honiavasa, they went ahead of Turner aboard the faster destroyer transports Ward, Lang, Talbot, and Zane. They were going to seize Rendova Harbor's beaches and the Honiavasa Passage. The convoys continued their voyage to New Georgia in the early hours of the 30th, facing no difficulties, and they would reach their jump-off points in the early morning. The Barracuda groups arrived at 2.25 a.m., successfully landing the 1st Infantry Group at Baralu, Honiavasa, and the Sassavelli Islands, securing their staging bases. The Randova group, however, got a bit lost, leading to a bit of disorder, but they did land nonetheless. By 6 a.m., the 43rd Division began its landing, which was described by the U.S. Marine Corps' official history as, quote, Hurried, and having the appearance of a regatta rather than a coordinated landing, it was chaotic in the extreme. Troops from the 103rd Field Artillery Battalion, 
Marines from the 9th Defense Battalion and Seabees from the 24th Naval Construction Battalion secured the beach even though Japanese snipers of the 1st Rifle Company, Kurei 6th and 7th Company, 229th Regiment were making potshots at them. There was also the appearance of Japanese baddies overhead who circled the landing zone, but they did not attack. The Japanese reported back to their commanders that due to the tenacious interference by the enemy fighter planes, a decisive blow could not be struck against the enemy landing convoy, and that the landings were an absolutely miraculous and speedy disembarkation of the enemy. I do believe this showcases another major disparity between the Allies and the Japanese, that of amphibious assaults. The Allies and Japanese were on par at the beginning of the conflict. Neither side really understood the science per se. But particularly the Americans, they began to really study how to do it, designing and employing multiple different vehicles to help in its effort. Meanwhile, the Japanese would do little to improve their methodology. Thus, from their perspective, to see how the Allies were doing it in mid to late 1943 probably looked like magic. General Hester's 2nd Battalion, 172nd Regiment, quickly established a defensive perimeter around the beachhead. His men had a rough time digging in due to the ground being heavily waterlogged. Nothing like a wet foxhole, eh? Outnumbered and taken by surprise, the Japanese were gradually pushed into the interior, suffering heavy casualties in the process. They initially assembled in a coconut plantation behind the initial landing beach known as the Levers Plantation. They took up a position hoping to launch a counterattack on the American perimeter. However, a week of heavy rain left them fighting miserably in knee-deep water, and eventually they just could not bear it any longer, so they withdrew further into the hinterlands. Troops of the 172nd Regiment pursued many of them, shooting down several snipers and machine gun positions as they advanced towards the Pengue River. Near the river, the Japanese tried to remain firm, meeting the Americans with all that they had but the U.S. mortars rained hell upon them, eventually forcing them into a rout. The Japanese would scatter, many aboard makeshift rafts trying to head for the mainland. These efforts would be in vain, however, as American patrol vessels caught many of them. Over on Banga Island and around Munda, Japanese artillery began opening up on the four U.S. destroyers sailing through the Blanc Channel. The USS Gwyn was hit, killing three and wounding seven before the USS Fahrenholt and Buchanan began to return fire upon the batteries, finally neutralizing them. Just before noon, a force of 27 Zeros of the 11th Air Fleet performed a fighter sweep over the beachhead, but it resulted in nothing more than a few delays and a loss of four Zeros to Allied fighters. 6,000 Americans were soon landed on Randova. It was grueling work to create the beachhead, and in the words of the CB's leader, Commander Roy Whitaker, about the conditions his men had to work in, they ceased to look like men. They looked like slimy frogs working in some prehistoric ooze. As they sank to their knees, they discarded their clothes. They slung water out of their eyes, cussed their mud-slickened hands, and somehow kept the stuff rolling ashore. Indeed, it was a hell of a time. Tons of bulky bee rations, hundreds of barrels of petroleum, thousands of barrack bags filled with personal items were being piled all over the beach. People don't often ever think about the logistics of war. It's usually seen as the unsexy stuff, but it was of critical importance as we have seen countless times in the series. Now the CBs were missing heavy bulldozers, 
Army engineers, adequate medical personnel, military police, because yes, boys will be boys, and a lot of them were stealing stuff. It turned out a reason for a lot of the lack was because Turner loaded the operation for an unopposed landing rather than an offensive one. As reported by Lieutenant Colonel McNenny, Equipment and stores carried in New Georgia operation were excessive. It appears the forward base must be considered as an assembly area for launching the assault. Colonel George W. McHenry wrote this in his notes. Believe too much gear for initial landing. Stress was necessary to fight neat. Bring other up after secure. By 3 p.m., most of Turner's stuff was unloaded and his vessels were preparing their withdrawal. Admiral Kuzaka and General Imamura had already been alarmed by the landings at Nassau Bay. And now they were shocked to find out at 6.50, Rendova was seeing some landings. In response, they unleashed an airstrike at around 3.45 p.m. Led by Lieutenant Commander Nakamura Genzo, 26 Bettys and 24 Zeros came in to attack the departing convoy. They were intercepted by 48 Allied aircraft made up mostly of F-4U Corsairs and F-6F Hellcats, and they were met also with heavy anti-aircraft gunfire. The Japanese lost 10 Zeros and 19 Bettys in the mayhem. However, a single Betty was able to release a torpedo which struck Turner's flagship, the Mikali, killing 15 sailors and wounding another 8. Turner luckily survived the hit, and he transferred his flag to the Fahrenheit. Rear Admiral Theodore Wilkinson remained aboard the Macaulay as she began being towed away by the cargo ship Libra. Later in the afternoon, another Japanese wave of 21 Zeros, 9 Vals, and 13 F-1M floatplanes showed up attacking the convoy. The Macaulay was being strafed, but managed to fight back with her anti-aircraft guns, shooting three planes down. By 6.50pm, it seemed the Macaulay was going to sink, so Admiral Wilkinson ordered her to be abandoned. Later on at 8.22 p.m., a PT boat would actually misidentify the doomed Macaulay as an enemy ship and torpedoed her twice, sinking her. So I guess you would call that a accidental scuttle. The poor fleet tug Pawnee, who had been tugging her the whole time, narrowly was hit as well. At 5.20, 21 zeros and 9 valves would launch their last attack, but it was extremely disorderly and amounted to nothing. By the end of the day, air souls had destroyed nearly a quarter of Kuzaka's air strength, while only losing 17 fighters in the process. The losses were so grave, Kuzaka was forced to ask General Imamura to commit the 6th Air Division to help out in the future. Now, when the IGN is asking the IGA for help, you know the shit has really hit the fan. Though I will note, despite me making that joke, uh, it's a rare case in the case of Kuzaka and Imamura, they actually kind of liked each other. Very rare for the Japanese. Now over in the east, Admiral Fort was performing his three simultaneous landings. At Wickham Anchorage, Fort was going to land companies N and Q of the 4th Raiders, along with Lieutenant Colonel Lester Brown's 2nd Battalion, 103rd Regiment. They would touch down on a 500-yard strip of beach at Olona Bay. The 4th Raiders would lead the charge, heading there in their first destroyer transports but Mother Nature was cruel that day, leading to six Hagen boats getting wrecked and seeing raiders scattered all over the area as a result. One platoon got stranded on a reef seven miles west of the landing point. That is no fun at all. Brown's landing craft infantry, meanwhile, had no difficulty in landing on the marked beach. 
After reuniting with the scattered raiders, Brown learnt there were enemy bases at Kuruku Village and Viru. In response to this, he sent Company E of the raiders to hit Viru while the bulk of his forces would capture Kuruku. The advance was slowed by rain, allowing Colonel Sasaki to send word to his men over at Wickham to withdraw to the northern coast of New Georgia as they were severely outnumbered and outgunned. However, there was no real way for them to do so, as their barges were scattered in the Marovo Lagoon. Thus, the Japanese found themselves under fire from the north side of Kuruku River, and by nightfall they were being pushed towards Segi Point, where their artillery was set up. The men defending Viru had it much worse, as they were easily scattered by E Company. The next day, the Japanese began unleashing their artillery, prompting Brown to request air and naval support to allow his men to hit Segi Point. However, the support would only be able to come on July the 3rd, and by that time, the Japanese had managed to escape. When July the 3rd came, some U.S. destroyers and eight Dauntless dive bombers bombed Segi Point. When Brown's troops went in, they killed another seven days Japanese, and then they captured one. Because of the preemptive capture of Segi Point, the plans had to change in regards to Viru Harbor. Thus, on the morning of June the 28th, Colonel Curran ordered a single company to use rubber boats and to go up the Choi River all the way to the western end of Nono Lagoon. From there, the raiders would march overland to hit the Japanese bivouacs at Tombe and Tidimara, hoping to link up with B Company of the 103rd Regiment. But now, with Segi Point taken, Curran instead left his two companies to land at a village just a bit west of Nono Lagoon. However, along the Choi River, they would run into Japanese patrols, delaying them heavily. By June 30th, some of the fort's destroyers would enter Viru Harbor, expecting to find Curran raiders, only to be met with 3-inch field gun fire from some Japanese at Tetamara. The destroyers left in haste and landed a company at Segi Point to help the raiders out. Curran that morning split his forces, sending P Company to attack Tombe, while the rest would circle west of the harbor to cross the Mango River to attack Tidimara. After marching through endless swamps, by July the 1st, Curran and his men were prepared to attack. But Sasaki had decided to order withdrawal of the forces at Viru, who were now marching overland towards Munda. At 8.45, the raiders stormed Tombe, overwhelming the few defenders there. Fifteen minutes later, 17 Dallas began bombing Titimara, disrupting Japanese artillery crews. And an hour later, the Japanese artillery opened fire against the raiders, but they fought through the rain of shells and machine gun bullets, taking the Japanese machine gun nests, causing heavy casualties. At 4 p.m., Kurun ordered a final push, seeing Tetemata taken after 30 minutes. Meijahara, alongside 160 Japanese, would manage to escape into the jungle, heading for Munda. Though the eastern landing saw some heavy resistance, all of the objectives were met. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Many of you who listen to this very podcast because you're telling me so in the comments have liked my tier list video I did on ranking 10 generals of the Pacific War, so I will be making one on admirals, warships, and more. Also just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. 
Over there, I want to cater to my patrons, and I make exclusive podcasts dedicated just to them. And soon I will be doing a very long episode on the second battle of El Alamein, a little bit out of the Pacific. But please check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The Allies' successful amphibious assaults proved how far they had come, and that the Japanese could only look in wonder at the marvel that it was. Now the Allies would keep pressing further and further north, one island at a time until the Solomons and New Guinea were liberated.